Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this single segment episode, Anne from PQ Podcast helps me compare the ending themes to Lucario and the Mystery of Mew, where Puffy Amiyumi and Jim Malone go head to head. After the outro, the two of us have some interesting thoughts on the movie itself. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from PQP Podcast, and we're doing our next installment of our series of comparisons of the ending themes to the Pokemon movies between Japan and uh, America. And we are up to Movie 8, Lucario and the Mystery of Mew. So, the two songs for this, on the Japanese side, we have... Well, depending on where you get it from, you might hear a different name. It's either called Song of Origin or Beginnings. It is by the uh, Japanese group Puffy Amiyumi, uh, or sometimes just known as Puffy. Well, you may get into why that is in a little bit. And then on the English side, we have We Will Meet Again, which we have said in previous times is by John Siegler, and he did work on this, but uh, I'm going to explain a little bit. I think it's actually performed by Jim Malone, uh, who has worked on Pokemon several times over over the years. And uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, we start each side of this. uh, We start by going over the background of each of the songs, and we're going to start, as we usually do on the Japanese side, and what can you tell us about Puffy Amiyumi? Okay, um, so Puffy, as they're known in Japan, is made of two women, um, Onuki Ami and Yoshimura Yumi. Uh, they both originally started out um, separately with different bands and solo projects, talent searches, and eventually both ended up at Sony Records and managed to kind of meet in their off time, like at an after party, and they became friends And at the time, neither of them felt particularly confident in pursuing careers as solo artists. So they asked the management at Sony to pair them together and debut them as a group. Um, And that, uh, it seems it just clicked for them because their first single, Asia no Junshin, was an instant hit. And their voices clicked, their styles and their sensibilities, like it just all seemed to be on the same page. And they got a huge popularity spike, you know, got a couple variety shows out of the deal and their quick rise to fame was dubbed Puffy Mania. Their producer and their songwriter is, is or was rather, Andy Strumer, whose name you may notice is not Japanese. Uh, he got the job producing Puffy's music because he was friends um, with the other producer and songwriter for Puffy, uh, Okada Tamio, of the band Unicorn, who was signed to Sony Music Japan as a songwriter and producer. And the two of them collaborated on writing and producing for Puffy for the entire time that they were mostly active in releasing things. And Strumer is actually the one who named the girls Puffy. Um, and Yumi and Ami call him the godfather of the group. And, and it's not completely rare for Japanese artists to have producers from other countries for like a specific single or even the group as a whole. But before the turn of the millennium, I feel that that was a lot rarer. And it may have contributed to some of their opportunities to perform in the U.S., They came to South by Southwest in 2000, uh, which is, if you don't know, a very large music festival in in Texas um, and often features international artists. And that festival was Puffy's first introduction to the United States. And they immediately got a cease and desist letter from Puff Daddy because in this country, he's got the name Puffy trademarked. So for legal reasons, they now release and perform in the U.S. under Puffy Amiyumi. They're still Puffy in Japan. And Andy Strumer helped a lot with getting the girls broken into the North American market through things like South by Southwest. And with that, they managed to get on the radar of Sam Register, who is the former vice president of Cartoon Network. He liked the group a lot and wanted to do something with them and began working on a pilot called uh, Hi Hi Puffy Amiyumi, which would become a show for Cartoon Network. But while that was still in development and they were kind of struggling to get it greenlit, he introduced uh, their songs to Glenn Murakami, who was the art director and producer of many shows in the DC animated universe in the 90s and early 2000s. Like he was up there with Bruce Timm creating the Batman Superman adventures and Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. And he got his solo produced series in 2002 uh, with Teen Titans. 
And so even though they weren't quite sure if Puppy Amiyumi would get picked up the show, they really wanted to push through and make sure that the girls did the Teen Titans theme song. And when you hear the interviews about it, like they are such fanboys, like they were so happy when they got Puppy Amiyumi to do it. Uh, they call it the Puppy Amiyumi harassment campaign. Andy Strummer, he served as the consulting producer for the Hi Hi Puffy Amiyumi TV show too, and got from there got into producing with a lot of other Cartoon Network shows. Um, and in the show, Yumi is voiced by Gray DeLiesel, and Ami is voiced by Janice Kawaye, I believe. In addition to Puffy, both Ami and Yumi have done some solo songs and work with some anime shows. Usagi Drop is probably the voiceover they're most famous for in that department. Yumi's done some live action acting as well. And over their music career, they've demonstrated a variety of skills. Yumi's been credited playing the guitar, the harmonica, piano, timpani, and the saxophone, and also speaks some English, Spanish, and a bit of French, and seems generally interested in speaking foreign languages whenever she can, because I think she busted out Hungarian on Hi Hi Puffy Ami Yumi. And Ami has been credited with the guitar, drums, timpani, and the trumpet. So if any of our listeners were fortunate enough to go to one of their live shows or their tours, I'm sure that was interesting to see. And today, both the girls are still active in the music industry, and they still play concerts and tour and do press and events. But they've not released anything new since, I think, like, before 2010. And I really don't recall seeing them on a music program in the last five years and like that's not hard data but I watch a lot of Japanese music television and I'm not like heard a breath from them for a while so I'd almost postulate they are more active in North America than Japan because I hear a lot more about those activities at the moment even so they're still very popular and like with 13 studio albums and all those solos they, they've got a bit of a legacy on the Japanese music scene and in their personal lives uh, both the girls have or are married Ami's married to the lead singer of the band Glay, and they have a son. And Yumi was married and since divorced from TM Revolution, and married and since divorced from an unnamed individual. And she also has a son from that marriage. See, as for their musical style, it's hard to fit it into a genre. I think it usually gets classified as dance rock or pop rock, because they have a lot of variety and disparate musical influences, like the Carpenters and ABBA. So they admit themselves it's kind of hard to classify them. And also, you know, because their vocals have that high-pitched nasal sound, in the West, we typically associate that with anime and Akihabara Idol, which is not their genre, but since a lot of people on this side of the ocean dump them into that genre of Japanese music, it makes it even harder to kind of identify what they are and put them in a box. But yeah, yeah it's high energy, lots of guitars, usually a three- or four-piece band, and and often some experiments on instrumentation, like the drums, trumpet number, and the timpani, the harmonica. But you don't get a lot of ballads out of these girls. It's kind of high pace. Well, you've definitely proven your uh, depth of knowledge on the band themselves and their career. Uh, what can you tell us about this particular song? Do you have any idea how it was commissioned or written or anything like that? It's kind of an interesting case. Uh, the song itself, Hajimari no Uta, or um, Song of Beginning, it's also sometimes translated as Song of Origin. I think Song of Beginning is a better translation, but that's just me. Um, is one of the few songs from the Japanese side that's well, was more easily available in the U.S. market. A little bit less so now, but still on the higher trajectory on that front. Because it was actually released on one of their U.S. albums as Beginnings. So that's interesting. But like most songs on the Japanese side, it was most likely contracted for the movie as a tie-in song, but may not necessarily have been crafted for the movie. And that's really common in Japan. Um, a lot of hit singles, especially in the pop market, will have some sort of commercial tie-in being the ending or the opening to a drama or an anime or a movie, uh, which is, I think, a way they differ from the songs on the English side. Um, you, you can disagree with me or correct me if I'm wrong. But like the English side is making songs specifically for the product kind of in this period. And the Japanese artists that are given the opportunity, like the song's purpose is also to be a hit single. So like it ties in with the Pokemon movie, but they also have to expect it to hit the top of the Oricon chart, which is kind of like Billboard 100. So it's not in its best interests to specifically sing about like monster balls and things. Uh, but Hajimai no Uta kind of falls in a weird place because it does 
actually reference specific and and explicit Pokemon things. Like there's a part where they kind of list out all the different types of Pokemon. And and given the niche that Puffy has carved for themselves in anime and cartoons and doing theme songs, not just tie-ins, I, I feel like they can get away with that in a way that, say, Asuka Hayashi maybe couldn't. So like while I don't feel the song was made for the movie in the sense that we usually use it on the English side, like previous movies, Puffy was probably contracted for this project and... And, and, you know, they worked on it sort of out of house, but they did deliver a song that can pretty much only be used as a Pokemon song. There's not much vagueness or double interpretation about that. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do want to kind of mention there, you had mentioned one of their English albums had this song and that was Splurge. And uh, as we've mentioned several times on this on this series of events, uh, you could get that on iTunes. You could buy the song individually. They were somehow able to clear the rights for that. But it was another victim of the 2009 iTunes DRM purge, wherein all the DRM tracks were delisted. You could still download them if you had purchased them, but you couldn't purchase them if you hadn't already. Uh, same thing that befell the second movie score, the Pokemon World single, the Extra Mile, probably one or two other things. Oh, Catch Me If You Can used to be on there. So, yeah, I think this is the last time we get to mention that particular turnover there, but it, it took some stuff with it. So, yeah. Do you know who actually did Puffy and Mewi tend to write their own stuff? And did they write this song if they did? Or, or who, who actually did the writing on this? Most of the songs, it was Andy, Andy Strumer and um, Okuda Tomio who did the writing. Um, I do believe, especially as they got later in their career, Puffy and Mewi had a bit more input. But I don't know that they got credited as writers on many of their albums. Some of their solo projects, I think, were a little bit different, though. Hmm. But yeah, the bulk of the songwriting was like also done by their producers. Interesting. Well, that's, that's still a pretty good chunk of info you were able to, to pull up there, so always appreciate that. Well, if we talk about the production on the English side, uh, as is the case with basically everything except like the first movie, uh, this the song was almost certainly written for, for this film, uh, We Will Meet Again. So it looks like it was co-written by John Siegler and Jim Malone. John Siegler, of course, did many things for the at least the the, the four kids era. Of course, he co-wrote the original theme song and many of the first eight season scenes. So he was heavily involved there. Uh, we did an interview with him uh, a ways back. Um, it has some audio problems, but it's still a good listen. Uh, Jim Malone is a little bit different. Uh, the reason I think it's him singing here is that I compared to some other stuff that we'll talk about in a moment. But anyway, uh, as far as other Pokemon stuff he's worked on, he apparently did some work for the Pokemon Christmas Bash album. And he also is credited as doing the vocals for the Camp Pikachu intro song for the fifth movie short. Uh, he sounds very different there, but I... Tried to find some of his other work, and I was able to find a couple albums he published in 2008 that you can dig through on like Apple Music or iTunes or whatever uh, to find. And uh, it's kind of interesting, the titles, because they were published around the same time, and one is called Malone Alone Red, and the other is Malone Alone Orange. And I listened through those, and they sound pretty close to what you hear in We Will Meet Again, so I'm pretty sure he's the lead vocalist. Uh, but the album titles... I don't know if that's the result of him working on Pokemon and wanting to do different color versions of everything, um, or if he was legitimately trying to go through other colors of the rainbow or something, uh, but I listened to it. It sounds pretty okay. didn't have enough time to really go deep in there, but I would suspect that a lot of the, the dub um, musician work there was through uh, contacts that Leffler and Sigler had uh, built through advertising work they'd done, and I'd suspect Jim Malone was pretty similar there, but unfortunately, that's about all I can find on him. Um, we can almost certainly assume this song was written for this movie, but I can't tell you a whole lot else, unfortunately. So, after that brief visit to the uh, English side, we're going to go straight back to the Japanese side. The style of Song of Origin or Beginnings is... Oh, it, it doesn't sound quite the same as uh, as the Teen Titans theme, which, to be honest, is kind of the only other Puffy Yami song I know. But it, it's definitely kind of a, a rock 
maybe a little bit of grunge in there, uh, and maybe you can come up with some better words than I can. Um, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it, it's it's real high energy, like most of what they do. Like, it's got sort of a rock beat, sort of a, a three piece band feel, like drums, guitar, keyboard, and more of a gritty indie feel, like. In Puffy's style, it's got a little bit less studio polish and feels more like you're in a dark club, like like the song you would listen to in in a in an underground club and less a fancy concert hall. So like a complete departure from the last movie. Yeah, I I would say maybe a little bit of like grunge to it, kind of that line between kind of a a, a sort of a punky rock and and poppy rock, because like you know some very catchy melodies. Yeah, it definitely has a yeah the, a more of a, uh, a a raw feel to it than a mm. super highly polished track like we saw with the last couple movies really because Lovely Boy was a very pop uh, highly produced track and then before that you know a small thing was a very lush orchestrated sound. This is neither. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of got like kind of a chaotic feel. Like this, this is your garage band sort of song yeah it definitely has more of a fun vibe to it uh i think is what they were going for here yeah you had mentioned some of the lyrics earlier that they mentioned some of the types but you said that there you seem to imply that there were other things that made it more obvious it was a pokemon song Uh, was there anything else like what is the overall song talking about yeah, it's it's kind of got that general Pokemon feel of like we came together and we met and we're going to be friends and go off into the horizon like that cliche. There's a couple references to like let's see carrying a like a ball of unrelenting strength and carrying it and keep walking and like that's a less explicit reference but like it feels like it's kind of calling up the idea of monster balls or pokeballs or even in the case of this movie maybe even gyro ball um i think the move that actually lucario uses the the thing there is orosphere that's like his it's not okay. really a signature move and that there are plenty of other pokemon that can learn it but it's sort of the one that lucario debuted it uh it has it in like smash brothers that's just like main projectile attack it's it, it, it's orosphere okay yeah, like the most explicit reference is the one to like all the types of Pokemon and like, you know, Watergrass, Electric Bug, Bird, etc. And like all of them are my friends and and all that. Like, but the rest is kind of more of the sort of the cliched Pokemon tropes. There is kind of a passage of like out there in this world, there are friends waiting for us. Sometimes a few tears drop out on nights like that. On nights like that, I don't sit still and worry, I just run, which kind of given some of the events of the movie does kind of call it to mind, but it is, it is far less explicit than the actual Pokemon types, but it's kind of just that feeling of like two people came together and from there is our beginning. And while it doesn't fit musically, I do think thematically there is something nice about like how from this point, everything starts with the way the movie ends. Like, to spoil the movie, there is some rather significant status changes for some people. And uh, from there on, though, a new journey begins. And those are lines from the actual movies. It's like, so-and-so went to go do this, or, you know, from here on, everything changes, stuff like that. So I kind of, I do think that kind of goes with some of the flow of the movie. But yeah, definitely the Pokemon types is the most strong callback to anything Pokemon related. That is the part at the end where they're just shouting a lot, right? Is that, am I right there? Um, a little bit before the part where they're shouting a lot is like when they're shouting out stuff like courage and, (laughs) and heroes, stuff like that. I've made it this far. Thanks to my friends. That's the very end where they're shouting a lot. There is kind of more of a choppy, like water, grass, electric bug, bird, gas, rock, ice, fire, kind of more in the middle well, an obvious comparison to English in that regard would be what kind of Pokemon are you from To Be a Master? Mm. How do you think they compare there? Well, I, for compare, I almost like this song better. It, it's less of a exclusively kids song, whereas I feel what kind of Pokemon are you? It's a lot harder for me to enjoy it as an adult. But I, yeah, I think they do share some similarities on that front, just kind of being like the fun call-out song. 
I suppose. Of course, you know, at this point, n- neither of these songs, uh, neither What Kind of Pokemon Are You or, or this one are t- up to date on type since... That's true. There's a couple more. We need to re-record this. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, well, there, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I did kind of want to mention that because, yeah, that is kind of a, a comparison you can make. It isn't talking so much about the types themselves. It's sort of listing them off, it sounds like. I mean, am, I, am I right there? Um, yeah, it's kind of listing them off, and it's kind of like, all of them are my friends. And then, yeah, just talking about, you know, and our friends, our belief is strong enough to make the land shake. Blah, 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 blah. What other Puffy Amiimi songs would you compare it to? Anything that sounds kind of similar to, or if you like this one, you'll like that? Anything else in that regard? Um, I kind of think it's similar to... Like, it translates to Red Swing. Like, basically everything they do has kind of got this feel of just, like, really fast beat and kind of just fun vocals and talking about, like, going forward to our dreams and friendship and, like, enjoying life. I mean, they're not... I don't feel that they're a group that talks a lot exclusively about, like, romance and stuff, although that sometimes is a theme, But yeah, that kind of just adventurous spirit, I think, is something that's very common throughout all Puffy songs. And then again, just the high pace and the energy. I think that makes them a good choice for this franchise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not so sure about the movie, but definitely like they were born to do Pokemon songs. Okay. So now that we've discussed, uh, you know, beginnings, uh, let's head over back to the English side. Let's talk about We Will Meet Again. I have some things I want to say, both about the style, um, but also the lyrics, and a few other things. First of all, it, it, well, it isn't definitely not super similar to the Japanese song. They are in a, the mood is kind of similar. And from a stylistic perspective, I would say it actually bears somewhat of resemblance to the Styx song, Come Sail Away. Now, if you don't remember, Styx is S-T-Y-X. Maybe I have some sort of weird affinity for bands with four-letter names that are misspelled versions of words. I don't know. <laughs> In any case, you may recall that Come Sail Away sort of has these self-harmonized vocals, and I think this song is kind of similar. Uh, the melodies are totally different, so it's not like Soul Heart where there's a passage that sounds kind of similar to another song. This time they do seem different, but it's almost as if someone did a original tribute song in, in certain <laughs> ways. Did you get... Thinking back on it, did any of that strike you, Anne? Yeah, um, more so lately. Like, at at the time of its release, like, I was really into this song, mostly because of some stuff that was going down in Pokemon at the time. But, like, I really loved it a lot. And over the years, I've kind of started to realize it's got some some cliches in it that, like, are, yeah, kind of along the lines of Come Sail Away and, like, some of those older classic rock-type groups and... I both love it and kind kind of laugh at it, but <laughs> it, it definitely kind of harkens back to those type of bands. Yeah, it, it took me after I heard of it. By the way, admission, today was actually the first time I had watched this movie. I'd heard the ending theme song many times because uh, I just listened to it, but this is my first time seeing the eighth Pokemon movie was today for this discussion, believe it or not. But I did want to mention the, we go on to the lyrics. They just mention some things. The setting of the movie is supposed to be very middle ages, which it, it's always strikes me as kind of funny how that's romanticized. It really wasn't that great of a history, uh, a time period in human history for, uh, average everyday people. It's fun to dress up as, sort of, but, uh, not a great place to live. But uh, it does mention like, I've got a, I forget the exact words, but fit for a king. And then it sort of goes goes through all that stuff. Do you think think the lyrics call out some of the stuff from the movie pretty well? They do. Some of some of them explicitly, like it opens up with like a like a mountain I must conquer and stuff like that. And then there's also a lot of more general things to the series. And I kind of feel that the song was created with dual purpose. But we can talk about that maybe a bit later. But, like, there's definitely a lot of stuff, like, we are bound together by fate, and nothing can stop this journey. Like, there's just a lot of very Pokemon tropes in it. And, and again, a few specific references to things in the movie, or, or at least that could be specific references. It's a bit more vague in this particular song than some of the ones in the past. 
Yeah, yeah. You kind of mentioned some of the stuff going down. We should definitely mention this is the last four kids dubbed movie. After this, there's that huge thing. I, I have mentioned before, I'm not quite as bothered by it. It is still going to be a little difficult to work through that again when we do the the next movie or so. Yeah. But um, you, you said dual purpose. Uh, what were you kind of implying there? It, it feels a little bit like a tribute song. Um, and kind of like you were saying, it felt almost like a tribute to sticks or something like that. In a way, something about this, especially like at the time when I first watched the movie and first bought the DVD and first heard this song, like there was some crying that went on in my young college life. And for years and years and years after I heard it, like there, like I, I have very vivid memories of the years following that four kids dub change of like listening to this song and just feeling nostalgic and feeling sad because, you know, I had grown to love these characters as they were portrayed by the four kids team. And and again, even if you're not bothered by the voice actor switch and the script writer switch and everything, it is still a thing that happened and it is still a different portrayal of Pokemon and the Pokemon characters and that changed whether or not you can grow to love the new the new team is still a change. And this feels kind of like it was a bit of a, a tribute or like a last hurrah for the eight years that came before. Yeah, I don't know if when they got to start producing the music, the original English music for this movie... Yeah, it may not necessarily have been meant that way, but it, it definitely lyrically plays out that way. Like you, And, and I, a lot of groups that were kind of like trying to kind of petition to get the old voice actors back kind of rallied around this song because it just kind of feels like a song that is calling out to everything that came before and, you know, we're going to go forward with joy and side by side we will ride once again if we keep the flame alive. <laughs> like, it's just got a lot of that feel to it. So, like, even though now that it, it's over and done with and we've grown to love our new cast and everything, like, it still kind of calls up those feelings of, like, this was a good end point, I guess. Like, it wasn't like the last thing. I don't know if it was necessarily the last thing ever recorded by four kids, but it was towards the end. And, and this song kind of feels like it put a nice little, nice little button on it that, you know, gave me emotional feels. <laughs> well, I didn't watch this movie. I owned it on DVD. I got it when it came out, but I didn't watch it back then. And of course, if you bought the original English DVD for this, it was bundled with the mini movie or whatever you want to call it yeah. uh with the uh the new voice actors and uh, a little disconcerting but <laughs> we're over it now i guess <laughs> i suppose i don't know if it was that great idea to package the two in one one thing there to invite the obvious well very obvious comparison but to make it even <laughs> more obvious i don't know yeah <laughs> maybe they were hoping hoping to like lessen lessen the continuity blow like we're we're still we're still going we're still together <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it also switched networks around that time um, and things like that. But yeah, I think it, this is one of the the songs, the Pokemon songs. You can say legitimately is to a degree intertwined with the history of the franchise and the fandom, not just this one movie. And maybe that gives it more of an, pardon the term, aura <laughs> uh, around it than some of than it might have otherwise gotten. Yeah, I, whether it wants to be, like, whether that was the intention or not, like, definitely a lot of fans who were still active in the Pokemon fandom at this time, this is one of the songs that they kind of gravitated to. Maybe fans who, like, kind of stopped watching over Johto and Hoenn, like, it, it's not on their radar, but for a lot of the ones who kept watching, like, this is a, a song that's kind of high up there on the list, just because of its emotional impact of, like, this is the end, and this is, <laughs> and that probably would have happened no matter what song we got. But since it kind of has that feeling of like sticks and journey and like emotional power ballad kind of <laughs> thing, yeah. Like I said, it's hard to say exactly. Obviously, for the the folks at Four Kids, there was we're not going to get into the whole thing because there's a fair bit of disputed history. I, I'd yeah. say it was uh, um, less. Well, the fans took it harder. Then when like Wizards of the Coast lost the license to the trading card game, 
but I don't think four kids in Pokemon ended up suing each other like Wizards of the Coast and the Pokemon Company did. So, I suppose it depends on the yardstick. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of narratives bouncing around, and I don't think we'll ever actually know completely all the ins and outs of what happened in that situation. Yeah. But yeah, like since you have a different perspective on this song than I do, because I'm a total sap, and like like I said, I was crying for like five years after this happened. <laughs> like, what's more of your perspective on the song and how it relates to to Pokemon? And like, you've talked a bit about it, I guess, but I like it. I mean, I I, I think it's a good song, and like I said, I mean, I, I had heard the song beforehand because I, I did, even though I've never watched the movie straight through, I did. Uh, listen to the end credits just so I could keep up on it a while back, and I knew folks did like it, and it had sort of that cachet with it, but just as a song, I'd say it's pretty good. Um, it's certainly, you know, compared to, like I said, we talked about with Movie 7, this relates to the movie a little bit better with the setting, and uh, I think it does an overall good job there. I w- I, like I said, I don't have the deep emotional connection. I wasn't particularly fighting for... Well, maybe a little more for the new voice actors, sort of, but I sort of accepted it for what it was, that it was going to be rough. I mean, to be honest, if you go back to like the first five or ten episodes of the TV show, even under the original cast, they were still sorting some things out. Yeah, yeah, some some changes there as well. And and part of that, because, you know, those were that was the beginning of the TV series, so... They had, were dubbing episodes where, when it was originally made in Japan, they were sorting things out there, too. <laughs> but, um, so I, I knew it would be an adjustment period. And like I said in our In Excess episode, I had just been through Rockstar In Excess. <laughs> so, changing voices was something I had sort of gotten used to. It was still an adjustment. Um, they didn't have the long break like In Excess had. But, so, yeah, so this this song does not have that sort of oh, we're fighting to sort of, you know, even if we can't, maybe we can't get everyone, but we can get some of them to, to work, continue to work on it or or whatever, but... Um, yeah, or at least that feeling of celebrating, celebrating what you had, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I had mentioned a few episodes ago that I wanted to show that we could sort of talk about controversial topics, and <laughs> this is sort of one of them. Yeah, yeah, the fandom's a little bit divided on this. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> There still are there. I do hope that some of uh, some of you folks out there can at least learn to live with the new arrangement. Um, because you have no choice. It's it. It happened. <laughs> it happened, and you know, even if they wanted to go back to the old voice cast, one of them is no longer with us. One of the primary yeah. voice actors, yeah. so they don't have that option anymore. And and you know, I've been thinking lately. Even if we were able to do that. Like one of the reasons the the change affected me so much is like I said I was in love with how they were portrayed and how how the individual actors acted these characters and with so much time having passed a lot of events have happened in the Pokemon world I'm not sure if we got Veronica Taylor back to voice Ash like I'm sure it would still sound great but she I'm not sure she she wouldn't have all the life experience that Sarah Notchenny has built up as Ash you know she would be coming at Ash from the same place as she left, which is not where Ash is now. So I almost think like, it's just one of those things we have to kind of accept as a thing that happened. And there is no going back. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes wonder going back to NXS, what's the alternate history if Michael Hutchins doesn't die, but, um, that might be a different world. <laughs> yeah. So I would, I don't want to go too far deep in this. We could, certainly do a whole episode about the the switch and sort of the progression from when the the new actor started to where we have now, which I think is sort of an in-between those two things. But Mm. I did want to mention it here because it does have that life outside of just this movie, which I guess aside from maybe the power of one, um, you can't say for a lot of these ending themes, but this one you can. Yeah, it, it had some impact beyond just the movie it was in. Okay, well, I think we're ready to move on to the part where we decide which of these we like more. I think I have a hard time deciding on this one. It is quite possible, I think, that this is one of the movies where they could have, especially with Puffy Amiyumi being at least somewhat known in the U.S., they could have done an English version. But as it stands, we do have two different songs. Yeah, do you remember... Hang on. 
Do you remember when this movie released? Um, I'm trying to look up a date on here. and Well, it would have come out in Japan in 2005. Yeah, so Puffy would have... They would have already been established in the U.S. and kind of still riding a pretty high wave. They almost... Like, I don't know if they would have wanted to do this necessarily, but I think they could have gotten away with even keeping the song and just advertising it as, 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 like, and just trying to push that and gotten like the cartoon scene and the anime scene. Cause a lot of people who would have been watching and buying Pokemon would have overlapped with the audience that was with Teen Titans. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's certainly, like I said, the, the hard part would have been any contractual stuff right. they would have had to work on. I mean, they were able to work out the song to be on their English released album, which like we said, you used to be able to get on iTunes well, um, they can work out the the rights for that because Puffy Ami Yumi, Yumi owns the song. Like, like it's contracted out of house. Like, the song doesn't belong to Pokemon exclusively unless, like, it belongs to Puffy Ami Yumi. Interesting. They they retain some rights to it. That isn't always the case, though, because sometimes true. Like, it's not the case with every artist, but again, a lot of these ones that were contracted out of house, like the way it works with the drama tie-ins and the anime tie-ins is the the band or the production company rather retains the rights to the master recording and they can use it for whatever they want and it's kind of negotiated between the franchise that the song was a tie-in for how that song can be used it's also possible i was just thinking that maybe they could have cleared it for america but maybe clearing it for like the rest of europe or other countries where pokemon was being produced would have been too difficult that that's possible, yeah. That, like they could justify America. I don't remember if their album was released totally worldwide or just in a few countries or what. Because obviously America is a big slice of the pie if you're going to do for for the dub of a movie. But you know, if you have to do it in individual contracts for each country in like Europe or South America, that gets pretty hairy. So we don't know if it was possible. Obviously, of all the the artists who have done something. For a Pokemon movie in Japan, Puffy Amiyumi is definitely one of the most well-known outside of Japan. Not counting one we'll get to in a couple movies, I suppose. But, you know, given the fact that they did replace the song... I think they're about equal, but they're different enough. I'm glad we have both. I I did kind of want to mention, and we'll get into this in a little bit when we talk about the score, neither of these songs, in terms of mood, I think really fits the movie that greatly they're i think especially the way the movie ends uh kind of tragically but also with a proper resolution seems kind of well uh, overly energetic to have an ending theme hajimari no uta is jarring i think we talked uh, like forever ago on think movie five about how that one song you're not alone Right, yeah, where it, like, it comes in with that, was, was it an accordion or something? Like It's just really loud after a very soft moment where the movie was almost silent. Like, Hajimai, Hajimai no Uta is kind of that same thing, where it's just so loud and high energy and fun of a song right after, like, we, we just talked about someone dying. And We Will Meet Again is, I feel, not so much of a... 180 mood switch but it's still a bit of a departure from like Absolutely. that emotional place we just were <laughs> yeah because lucario goes into this sort of they don't use the word dead i don't think but it basically sacrifices itself yeah. to preserve the um the uh the tree of origin i think it's called and you know then we go from that straight into the end credits where we have this very upbeat song it's in a way, it's kind of the opposite of the You're Not Alone because we're going from a relatively positive ending in the movie five to sort of a tumultuous, uh, somewhat dark song in the end credits. Yeah. Which is, like I said in that episode, makes me uncomfortable when I try to pair it with the movie. It, it kind of really doesn't sit too well. This one, maybe a little less jarring, but I would have really expected something much more like, more like what we've seen with sort of the X and Y dub endings, and maybe to a lesser extent the Japanese ones, where it is something a little more reflective and stuff like that. And this seems more like something that you would hear at a movie where the ending is like, oh, everybody's fine, everything's good, we're all gonna 
go on our reigning adventures not oh geez well that was that was very brave of of lucario um and a very noble sacrifice Uh, well and not just lucario like everybody in this movie died at one point Yeah, we don't know exactly what happens when they're when they're pulled in by the tr- by the stone mountain antibodies or whatever they are. Right, D- death is is in air quotes, but so some something traumatic happened to every single one of these characters. <laughs> so yeah, they kind of go to the cornfield or whatever, yeah. but uh, something happened. Something creepy happened. So yeah, it's just ah. Uh, it feels like a cheat to to say that they are both a tie for me, but like you're right, they are very close in that they're both good songs and they're both not entirely meshing with the last scene. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like uh, I was I was getting kind of flashbacks to like Harry Potter Four Goblet of Fire, where the I guess we're going to spoil other movies here too. The one of Harry's friends gets killed in the final conflict and the ending is kind of muted. Um, they don't do a, a super happy song in the end credits mm-hmm. in that one, but you, you kind of get the feeling that if they had, maybe we'd get something like this. It is a little bit jarring. Yeah. Do you think, I hate to put this out there kind of, do you think they're trying to make folks sort of move on and I hate to say the word forget, about what kind of happened at the end of the movie there. Well, you might not be wrong. Um, cause uh, like this is, this is a franchise that is targeted towards very, very young children. So it's like to have the movie go to that kind of dark place where it's like, yeah, they can use the word death, death, but it's kind of heavily implied that something death like happened is interesting, but I feel like as a company, they probably feel like they got to come right back as soon as they can. So I feel like they, this might be a way that the company feels that they can catch themselves to have a happy song to kind of play under the end credits as the, as the kids are kind of like watching the credits and maybe their parents are ushering them out of the theater so that they're kind of happy again, having a happy song playing while, you know, Ash and Brock and, and May and Max are all getting on with their journeys and everything. Like that's that's a possible consideration. The other one is, given that it was contracted out of house, like the song Hajime no Uta seems to have more of a tie to Pokemon than some of the past ones, and We Will Meet Again was probably made for the movie as well. But they may not have necessarily been made knowing exactly where the end theme ends, or having deep discussions about that with the filmmakers and the directors. So it's also entirely possible that it's kind of coincidence. Like Puffy was like, oh, we're making a Pokemon song. It's got to be Genki and we're, you know, we're going to have fun and about friendship. And maybe they had a few notes about what the movie would be about. But ultimately they made something happy. And and the same with We Will Meet Again. It's like we're making a song for a Pokemon movie. And it's like when they actually kind of put it together, it's like, oh, the movie actually ends on kind of a dark note. I suppose. I mean, we will meet again. I suppose you can sort of apply that to Lucario and Aaron. Yeah, like there is kind of, as I've said, like, I kind of project a lot onto the song because of my emotional feelings at the time. But there is a bit of a sense of finality to the lyrics of we will meet again and a, a feeling of like we are separated and I have to find you. I have to search for you over every mountain like I have to fight for your honor and we will meet again it kind of implies there's been a separation which like fits the movie it fits what happens to Lucario at the end so there's a lot of ways it does relate and it could be that they develop like it's a little more surprising for the English side because I think they would have had the, the movie by then in their right like whereas with the japanese i can see puppy on me like having developed the song without actually seeing the ending but yeah it could be that they just developed it along those themes on both sides without really considering the exact final scene but it's hard to tell like i said it's also equally valid they might have just wanted something a little more positive so that you know small children didn't go home crying they weren't quite brave enough to pull a Ghibli or something. <laughs> Perhaps not. 
Before we move on to the score, there is one other thing we should talk about. It's been absent for the last couple movies, but the intro sequence for movie eight does, in fact, use the season theme. Uh, on the English side, we have Unbeatable, the last of the David Rolfe performed themes. And then on the Japanese side, we have Battle Frontier, which is, of course, where this what was just getting started here. So... What's it like having that back in the movie there? It makes me so happy, um, especially these two songs. Like, I just love them both so much. And, like, I sing them all the time. Like, they're just so wonderful <laughs> and, like, full of passion and confidence. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it makes me happy to have them back in the movies. Like, I am glad that maybe for a couple movies we you know, tried something new and, and, you know, opened on kind of a, a more somber tone or a quieter tone. But it is fun to kind of have that big, you know, Pokemon battle opening again. Yeah, I mean, the structure of movie six and seven, I think, is more amenable to having a quiet opening. So I think that's probably okay there. But the way they kind of structured this one with the tournament to open it up. And we do see like, I think one or two other tournaments in some of the later movies mm-hmm. having the, the bombastic opening theme, I think is the the way to go here. I, I, I'm not sure. I think that Unbeatable was expanded because it was originally the TV version and they had to add more verses to it, more lyrics to it. I don't think they maybe expanded it as well as they would have liked, but I still think it's, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, has that expanded version ever been released? It is not the version that they use on the Pokemon X album right. from 2006-2007. I don't know precisely why they couldn't get anything from here. They do have a bunch of songs on that album from Season 9, mm-hmm. but uh, this one that just didn't kind of work out. I'm not sure exactly what happened with that because it's a would be nice to have the expanded version of this as well as I believe yeah. from Season 5, but... Yeah, yeah, nope, you get the shortened TV version kind of unfortunately. Pity. But it is kind of nice having that back. Like I said, if the if the structure allows, if they want to do like a prologue like they did in movie 7, or if they want to do a more subdued opening like in movie 6, I think that it is acceptable not to use those. But I always like having the alternate versions. I especially like it when they differ greatly between the TV and the movie versions. Yeah, when they really go for a different musical feel. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's let's talk about the score to this one. This has, it does carry in a little bit of that medieval feel. I, I think going forward, we do see a lot of cities that are based on places in Europe, which tend to have more castles as the, the setting for public movies. I did kind of want to mention that, do you feel the the medieval setting was a bit of a reaction to the more sci-fi based elements of the sixth and especially the seventh movies? Um, it could be that they were yeah just trying to do something different, and they hadn't done medieval castle for a while. Yeah, like it's hard to say like what came first if location came before story or vice versa because. If the story idea came first, like with a, you know, an ancient person or an ancient Pokemon rather sealed in a staff, that lends itself to classical. So it would, it narrows your options to like medieval Europe or medieval Japan or China or like, you know, a country with a lot of history rather than say a sci-fi sort of themed, which kind of is a bit more futuristic and has less of a, of a history attached to it. So. But it, again, if location came first, then obviously you would build a story around that. So mm. it, it's kind of tough to say, but I think it's fair to say, yeah, they wanted to try something different than what they had been going for in the past couple. Yeah, like I said, it would be interesting to know. Now, the interesting thing here is, although I had only seen the movie today for the first time, I had listened to the score for this film many times when I would play it on the station and just listening through it. So I recognized a lot of the stuff here. So actually being able to hear it in context was kind of interesting. I can't quote any of it, uh, kind of unfortunately, off the top of my head. I'd have to listen again. I think, especially after this movie, I think is the part where the scores increasingly sort of blend in more and more together, which is one of my sort of criticisms going forward is that the song, the scores don't maybe stand on the, 
their own as well as some of the earlier movies. But I, I still think this has a pretty decent score that, that works pretty well. Yeah, it's got a lot of moments where, I don't know, it just feels like it's well-balanced. Like, the, you know, the, during the Pokemon battle and, like, the tournament, like, there's a good energy. There's the moments where it's kind of, like, quiet. It, it needs to be quiet. There's a couple places where there's, like, just good uses of dead silence. Um, the battle at the beginning, like, it just feels... The score is it's it's not especially memorable and like there's not a lot of pieces of music that I can think of off the top of my head like oh that went to that movie and that's iconic in the way that some of the earlier movies were but it it definitely fits everything it it needed to support. Yeah, I say actually now that I'm thinking about it, one of the ones that definitely stands out is the the dancing the ballroom scene has a, oh, yeah. a rather memorable tune to it and some of the related things in that sort of chunk of the movie uh, definitely stand out. And that was a little different, yeah. Like, I, I don't feel like that's a, a musical style, because it, it did felt, feel very classical to it. Like, not completely, but like, I don't feel like it's the type of music that the Pokemon franchise had used much before, so that was kind of interesting. That sort of waltz. Yeah, so, I mean, it's definitely appropriate to that scene, so works mm-hmm. out there. It is interesting to note, like, that this movie does take place in Kanto, and <laughs> which is, like, most of Kanto is very, very Japan. So I kind of find that interesting, that there's, like, this German-based castle kind of just hanging around near Nibby City. <laughs> Maybe they were isolated because they are in the mountains, I don't know. Yeah. But it's like there's Japanese-style shrines, like, literally all around <laughs> And there's a Venice-like city in Johto? Yeah, yeah, there are a couple, like, sometimes Johto, I think, gets more of a pass on that, because they had a lot of Western influence in um, real-life Kansai's history. But, like, it just does make me laugh a little bit. It's like so much of Kanto, like, drew heavily from Japanese culture, and, and, and it was less concerned with building, like, a specific world image for the Pokemon world at the time. So it kind of, a lot of things were more explicitly Japan. So like to have this one random, <laughs> I mean, it's not the only Western style castle and mansion in, in Kanto, but it, it does make me laugh a little bit, especially since it still seems to have its own, at least like puppet government <laughs> going on. Yeah, at least at the very least they seem to hold a decent amount of like ceremonial power or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like that—that that might be a special episode on my Patreon someday. Is like government in the Pokemon world, yeah. cultures of of the regions. All right. Well, I think that does it for movie eight. Our next one is, of course, uh, our next episode is going to be movie nine, Pokemon Ranger, and the Temple of the Sea. I believe is the dub title. That will be a thing to be protected on the Japanese side, and together we make a promise on the English side. And uh, another admission here, have not list, uh, watched this movie either. Um, know even less about it than this one, <laughs> So the movie 8. So I think uh, this is going to be interesting. Uh, hopefully uh, we'll have some stuff to talk about. But uh, until then, Anne, thank you very much. Always great having you on. Uh, thank you. You as well. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, discussing the music of the eighth Pokemon movie. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. I did kind of want to add my own uh, little bit of trivia, something I do know about Puffy, Ami, Yumi, and their sort of American producer or whatever, uh, Andy Strumer. So back in the 90s, he used to be in a band called Jellyfish. Uh, I think their, their biggest album or single or whatever was called Belly Button or something like that. But he does have connections to another video game franchise. Uh, the band Jellyfish was hired out to produce a song for the album White Knuckle Scorin, 
which if you're not familiar, is this very strange Nintendo promotional album that was put out in like 92, 93, 94, somewhere in there. And they did really the only track that I know to be explicitly Nintendo-related. It's called Ignorance is Bliss. It's this very uh, interesting song. You may have seen a video of it on YouTube at some point where it is uh, King Koopa, Bowser Koopa, singing to Princess Toadstool, sort of berating her and sort of her uh, saying she has sort of like this false image uh, that she has generated. It's interesting, and you should consider looking it up at some point. So just going to want to bring things a little bit full circle there. This is amazing. I'm going to get on YouTube right after this. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of an infamous song. And, uh, you yeah, know, White Knuckle Scorn, of course, hasn't really been re-released anywhere. But uh, that's like the, there's even like a mini comic in there or something related to it. So did want to kind of mention that. I don't know if that played any part in any of this, but. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Let's see. I don't know if this goes anywhere. The other thing I wanted to mention about the mood of the movie is I kind of feel bad for Mew at the end of the movie. It just has to stick around in that mountain and just stay there because there's a symbiotic relationship and it has all these toys it's collected or whatever from like the people who are in the area I guess because it has like well it gets Aaron's gloves um, but it also gets what else like this weird blow toy with uh, shuckle and stuff like that oh yeah <laughs> I, I do and, and then they say well we don't want this to become a tourist trap so Mew's going to be kind of lonely um <laughs> Yeah and, yeah, and it has to, like, kidnap people to hang out with. Like, I don't know why the native Pokemon of the mountain aren't en- enough to keep it mm-hmm. friendly. Kind of lonely being a uh, legendary Pokemon, I guess, or mythical, I guess, Mew's category. Mew kind of falls into. They kind of separate that out these days. Yeah, I don't It's kind of interesting, because on the one hand, Mew can, it seems, leave the mountain, but it doesn't look like it can go especially far. Like, again, assuming it's not the same Mew we saw in the first movie. Which I, I believe it is not considered to be... I know the Mewtwo we see in Genesect is not the same Mewtwo. Right, yeah. And, like, it would... They are kind of in the same geographical area, but it, likely not the same. I don't know. The, the, a lot of things in this movie are sad and uncomfortable and, and for me, anger-inducing Pikachu. But I did want to put that on the record as sort of like, I, I feel kind of bad for Mew there at the end. It's like, it's got to stick around with all those little toys and just kind of hang out in the area. And that's for eternity, yeah. potentially. It, it yeah, could even yeah. be the same Mew from the start of the thing. It could be immortal. That's... I know. We, yeah, we don't know how long this particular Mew lives or how... Gosh, yeah, if it's the same one that's been there since Sir Aaron. Oh, gosh. Like, we're talking, what, a thousand years? Yeesh. Anyway. Se- several hundred? <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it's good. Yeah, this is, this is, this is the darkest Pokemon movie. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's definitely winning a couple prizes in that department. Like, gosh, Ash nearly dies twice. Like, poor Pikachu. I hate him in this movie, but I also feel a little bad for him, because... What don't you like? I, I didn't quite get that. That he doesn't try to find Ash sooner, or... I'm a little upset that it took him... Well, A, that he could not get himself down off the mountain and didn't make an effort. Like, first of all, it didn't... He didn't show any signs of, like, being concerned about what Ash would think. Because, like, for all he knows, Ash thinks he's dead. Or, you know, captured by Team Rocket or whatever. But, like, it didn't occur to him until, like, late at night that he's like, oh, maybe I should try to get it back to Ash. Like, he was just, you know, off chasing shiny things with Mew. And then it bothered me that once he did start thinking about Ash, he did not make any effort to get off the mountain himself, which is, like, it's easier for Pikachu to get down the mountain than it is for Ash to get up it, like being a Pokemon and like Pikachu could have talked to any passing Pidgey, <laughs> like, or, you know, sent a message back to Ash. Like he didn't put out much of a fight arguing with Mew over like, I need to get home. So there was that, like just forgetting how the movie turned out where like Ash actually died because Pikachu couldn't get his stupid butt off the mountain. But like just that Pikachu did not put in any effort to get back to Ash on his own 
kind of bothered me that he just he just accepted that like I will be lost until Ash comes find and finds me. Like, because again, there's no Peach has no reason to believe that Ash even knows where he is. Like, Ash might go to Saffron City or Viridian City and try to knock on Giovanni's door or something. You know, might start hunting down the Team Rocket balloon. Like, like so that that bothers me a lot. And mm. but at the same time, I do feel a little bad for Pikachu because watching Ash nearly die twice is kind of rough. So, all right. Well, I think that'll be a, an outtake or something right yeah, there. So, <laughs> I have deep feelings. Like, when I get to movie eight on my podcast, we're going to be like an hour of Pikachu rage. Mm, interesting. <laughs> it's so bad. 